0: When Jesus is invited to dinner, two things are absolutely sure. Here's the first one. It will not be dull. When Jesus is invited to dinner, it will not be dull. And secondly, the conversation will be great. When Jesus is invited to dinner, it won't be dull, far from it. And the conversation will be great. The events of Luke chapter 14, especially verses 1 through 14 that we'll study, need to be seen in light of two passages. The first one is Luke 5, 31 and 32. In Luke chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, our Lord says, Those that are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. Then Jesus goes on to add, I have not come to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners. Whatever we're going to see in Luke chapter 14 meshes well, coincides well with what Jesus says in Luke 5, 31 and 32. The second passage is Luke 19 and verse 10. Luke 19 and verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Keep those passages in mind. And also keep in mind that Jesus at this point in Luke, Luke chapter 14, is on his way to Jerusalem Where he knows according to God's plan, he will be crucified on the cross. Luke 9 and verse 51. When Jesus comes to dinner, I hope that Jesus has not only been invited to the dinner table in your house, I hope that he's been invited into your heart and that he is welcomed there. When we look at Luke chapter 14, I want to focus from verses 1 through 14 on three truths when Jesus comes to dinner. Three truths for when Jesus is invited not only to the dinner table, but to our heart to live. Think about these. In Luke chapter 14 verses 1 through 6, When Jesus is invited to the dinner table, the sick experience the Savior's compassion. When Jesus is invited to the dinner table, the sick experience the Savior's compassion. Now let's just take those first six verses, Brother Bill, and look at them, verses 1 and 2. Verses 3 and 4, verses 5 and 6, everybody. Verses 1 and 2 tells us a lot. Tim read these verses for us as part of the Scripture reading just a few moments ago. It tells us the day on a Sabbath day, a Saturday, the day of worship in the Old Testament. This is... The fourth occasion in the book of Luke where Jesus will get into trouble with religious leaders for healing somebody that was sick on the Sabbath. Let me give you the first three. Look, if you will, at Luke chapter 4, verses 31 through 41. Luke 4, 31 through 41. In this passage, there is someone who is demon-possessed. It's the Sabbath day. And Jesus casts this demon out. And some of the Lord's critics can only criticize him for doing this on the holy day. A day of worship, the Sabbath, to them. He's apparently done work, at least in their estimation, and therefore is guilty of sin. Here's the question of questions. Is it right to do good all the time? Is it? Is it right to do good all the time? It was right to do good on the Sabbath. But these people, some of the Jews had so elevated their tradition and what could not be done on the day, they failed to appreciate what could and should be done on the day. Good. Look, if you will, now at Luke chapter 6. In Luke chapter 6, there is a man with a withered hand. And I don't know why, but every time I mention it, I shrivel up my hand. Make it into kind of a claw. But it's the Sabbath day in Luke chapter 6, verses 6 through 11. And the Lord heals this man of the withered hand on the Sabbath day. Now imagine not being able to use your hand for no telling how long the Lord does what is good. And he does it on this particular day. Now to some of his critics... He's been this way for a long time. Couldn't you wait one more day? That's basically their belief. Because the day, the Sabbath, in their judgment, was a day in which no work could be done at all, including what was good. Something terribly inconsistent about that, you think. Now, look, if you will, <clears throat> at Luke 13, verses 10 through 17. Luke 13:10 through 17. We have a woman who you talk about some severe curvature of the spine. she has been bent over Luke 13, 10 through 17, for 18 years. Eighteen years. Stooped over. Imagine how painful that must have been. The Lord heals her. Woman, you are loosed! And the critics of Jesus jump on that. Well, now we come to Luke 14, verses 1 and 2. It's the time, the Sabbath, the setting or place. He has been invited to the home of a leading Pharisee. Mark that in your Bible. He's not just your regular Pharisee. This particular Pharisee is a really big deal, everybody. He is a leading Pharisee. He may well have even been part of the Jewish Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin. We don't know that with certainty, but we know for a fact He is a leading Pharisee. Similar terminology is used in Acts chapter 5, verses 39 through 41 of Gamaliel. And Gamaliel was the Jewish rabbi under whom Paul learned when he was a Jew. So this man is a leading Pharisee. He is invited to the home of this leading Pharisee. I suspect Jesus was probably aware that it was possible that a warm welcome would not be awaiting him, and yet he still goes. Aren't you glad that Jesus is willing to go where he's invited even when he may wonder how warmly welcomed he'll be. Think about this. The text tells us here is the purpose. They invited Jesus, this well-regarded Pharisee, this leader of the Pharisees, invites Jesus to his home on a Sabbath to carefully watch him. Milton, i got my eye on you. That's exactly what they're doing with Jesus. I'm going to keep my eye on Him. And in Luke chapter 11, verses 53 and 54, the Word of God says that they were watching Jesus carefully in order to trap Him or ensnare Him. Well, you can invite the fella to your house, Jesus, this man that the people hold as a prophet. We can keep our eye on him, and if he missteps, we'll be there to point it out and to embarrass him before everyone present. That seems to be the idea. And while the text, Tim, doesn't say this whole situation is a ruse and it's a plant, Part of you has just got to think when you read Luke 14 that the whole thing is a contrived scenario to keep their eyes on Jesus so they can catch Him in a slip-up. And that's what they're hoping for. Now notice verse 2. It says in 2 and 3... Behold, a man with dropsy, and he is placed before Jesus. The placement of this, the specific incident is this. Jesus gets to the dinner on the Sabbath that's being held by this leading Pharisee, and right within his vision, there is an individual with dropsy. And what that means is, here is a person who has fluid build up, A fluid buildup, often due to kidney problems and heart issues. Many of the Jews, in their secular writings, associated dropsy with sin, and especially sexual sin. The text doesn't go into any of this. It just indicates for us, though, that there is a man right in Christ's line of vision who has this awful disease. Now verses 3 and 4. When Jesus is invited to dinner, the sick experience the Savior's compassion. Notice verse 3, ask question number 1. Two questions are asked in Luke 14, 1 through 6. Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or not? It sounds like a pretty simple question. Unless you're one of the lawyers, the studied people in the old law, or the Pharisees. Because if they answer the question yes, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath, then they needed to quit criticizing Jesus for what he's done or what he's about to do. And if they say that it is not lawful to do good on this day, then people are going to say, wait a minute, is that very consistent? Explain yourself and why you think this is true. And the lawyers, the experts in the old law, the Old Testament law, and the Pharisees remain silent. That's what the text says, isn't it? The Miranda right. They had the right to remain silent and they decided to. So they would not answer. And so what Jesus does, and look at what the text says. Notice the action verbs, and I love them here. He took him and healed him, the man with dropsy, and sent him away. While we can't say with absolute certainty if this whole situation is just a contrived circumstance to get Jesus into trouble... What could be more uncaring and loveless than using a person who's gravely ill to get to Jesus? Think about that. So Jesus takes hold of him, he heals him, and he sends him away. And then the Lord asks a second question. Which of you, having a son or ox that has fallen into the ditch, would leave him there? Which of you, having a son or an ox that's fallen into the ditch, will leave him there? How heartless! And if you're thinking about the ox, now I realize the times in which we live, but are we going to treat animals better than we treat people? Are you really going to do that? This sick man that I have just healed, would you let him remain fallen in the ditch one more day? You wouldn't do that with your ox. Nor would you do that with your child. Why should I do this with this sick person? When Jesus comes to dinner, the sick experience, the Savior's compassion. I'd say at least initially in this chapter, there is a lack of compassion Jesus is invited by this Pharisee so they could keep their eye on him. A man with dropsy has either been intentionally planted there by these Jewish leaders or he has shown up at this meal looking for help and they are oblivious to him. But Jesus isn't. I remind you of Luke 5, 31 and 32. Those that are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners to seek and save that which was lost. But there was a whole lot more sickness and lostness around that table than just that person with dropsy. Now some observations and we'll move on. Two observations. Observation number one. Sometimes are my motivations hypocritical? Sometimes are my motivations and yours hypocritical? I want to keep my eye on them and I'm going to look for them to mess up, and if they do, I'm going to pounce on them. You know what? The lawyers and the Pharisees here in Luke 14 were sicker than the man with dropsy, even though that may well have been terminal in his case had Jesus not healed him. Because they were swollen up with hypocrisy. The second observation I would like to make concerns opportunity. The lawyers and the Pharisees had the opportunity to see and to hear and to witness the power of God, and they, they rejected it. A man quite ill, looking to Jesus as his only hope in sickness, finds healing. Do we recognize that there's the opportunity when Jesus comes to dinner and when Jesus is in our life for healing? Secondly, look at verses 7-11. through 11. In Luke 14, 7-11, consider this. When Jesus comes to dinner, the lowly are exalted by the Savior's grace. The sick are healed by the Savior's compassion. He's moved in compassion for what is lost. Matthew 9, 36. Matthew 14, 14. But not only that, but... When Jesus comes to dinner, the lowly are exalted by the Savior's grace. Now, Jesus has had a word for the experts in the Old Testament law and for the Pharisees. For those that kind of look down on others because they were so holy and learned for those of us who think of ourselves as holy and learned, maybe we need to look at Luke 14, 1 through 6. And for those who tend to get a little full of themselves with pride, we certainly all could examine Luke 14, 7 through 11, because Jesus says, I've got a word for those of you that are guessed. When you look at verses 7 through 11, here's what's happening at this dinner, on the Sabbath, I put it this way, and most of you will understand, everybody is jockeying for position. Everybody is looking for the best seats because to be seated in an important place was a clear indication of one's importance and one's prominence and of one's place in life. The closer you are to the head of the table, the one hosting the feast or the banquet, the more prominent you are. Now, here's what Jesus says I've got a word for you. You know, every now and then, we haven't had this happen as much in the last year with social distancing, but we would have a member of the congregation that would go up to a guest in one of our services and say, You're sitting in my pew. I guess the only way you could prove that is by DNA evidence. But I I don't know. You're sitting in my pew. Aren't you just... Shouldn't we just be glad that when, when we have guests and welcome them? It's rather thoughtless to walk up to somebody and say, you're sitting in my pew. Can I get an amen there? Thank you. Now... Notice what Jesus says. When you are invited, because this is going to sound an awful lot like verses 12 through 14. When you invite, he says there. He's talking to the host in verses 12 through 14. But in 7 through 11, he's talking to the guest. When you are invited, do not. Do not try to get the best seat. Lest you fall. And the idea is, here's the idea. The person who's throwing the party might come up to you and say, you know what? I don't know why you sat here, but my friend needs to be seated here. And you have the walk of shame. The walk of embarrassment. Because you've been seated in a place that you thought would be okay for you, but the one throwing the party looks at you and says, "Uh uh-uh, not you. Have you ever been embarrassed in a a public circumstance? I suspect we all have. And that walk of shame or that walk of, of embarrassment, it can overwhelm you. Really, this comes from Proverbs chapter 25, especially verses 6 and 7. Take a more lowly seat. Then the person that's throwing the dinner might come up to you and say, Friend, why don't you come on up more close to us? We've been friends for so long. What this passage does is serve as an indictment against pride. Verses 1 through 6 are an indictment against hypocrisy and against a failure to see those that are hurting. But verses seven through eleven are an indictment against pride. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Proverbs three thirty-four, James four, verses six and following. First Peter five five through eleven. And verse eleven is the key here. Verse eleven is the key. Notice what the passage says. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. A couple of observations. The observation that I'd like to make, first of all, concerns motivation. You ever find yourself saying or wanting to say, Don't you know who I am? Don't you know who I am? Don't you know how long I have attended this church? Don't you know how much I have given to this church over the years? Don't you know how much I've done over the years? You see, these things don't just happen at dinner parties. They happen at worship assemblies and at the Lord's Supper table. Don't they? As wrong as they are, Jesus is saying when Jesus comes to dinner... The lowly will be exalted by the Savior's grace. Now, turn in your Bible to two passages with me. The first one, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. The second one, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. In 1 Peter 4, verse 7, Paul, the apostle, through the Spirit, says... What do you have that you did not receive? There's something tremendously humbling about that. What do you have that you didn't receive? If you've got a reputation, then God gave that to you. If you've been able to worship here 20 or 30 or 40 years or more, God allowed you that blessing. If you've been able to give generously to help the work of the Lord, you don't have to advertise it because the Lord is the one who blessed you in the first place and He knows what you're doing with it. Don't you know who I am? And it is really ironic because the one who is speaking to the guest is the king of glory and the one who is the host of all that is good, Jesus. How can anybody be full of themselves and not understand that they are devaluing the king of kings? Now 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11. You know, pride though. I've had to deal with it enough in my own life. It's so much easier to see in somebody else's life than it is our own, isn't it? And yet we are all prone to jockeying for position. So that we look good. And people think well about us. In 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11, there are speaking gifts, there are serving gifts, but whether we have gifts of speech or gifts of service, they are all gifts of the manifold grace of God. Keeps everything in perspective, doesn't it? Our motivation and the opportunity there... To see that, you know, who could, this, who could the lawyers and the Pharisees have healed on the Sabbath? Did they have a long track record of healing anybody on the Sabbath? And Jesus has just healed this man so seriously ill that they could not deny. You think that they would have more questions that were sincere We have the presence of the Lord. That should keep us from becoming proud. The more aware you and I are of the grace of God, the less we will be swayed by the sin of pride. You show me any of us who struggle with pride and I'll show you a person who struggles with God's grace. Number three. Verses 12 through 14. Now Jesus has a word for the host. The word is present at the dinner table and every word he says is precious to think about. This word, verses 12 through 14, to the host. To you as a host. Don't just invite your friends and your family and those that you know really well. Now, that doesn't mean you can't have time with those people. Jesus spent time with the apostles, Jesus spent time with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, Luke 10, 38 through 42. But those were not the only individuals with whom Jesus spent time and with whom Jesus ate. Don't just invite your family and your friends and your loved ones, lest you miss out but also invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. And then Jesus says, why? He says, these people will never be able to repay you. They'll never be able to pay you back. Get this third truth. When Jesus comes to dinner, the have-nots and the outcasts are welcomed by the Savior's invitation. When Jesus comes to dinner, the have-nots and the outcasts are welcomed by the Savior's invitation. "Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy-laden, I will give you rest," Jesus said. Matthew 11:28 through 30. A little more about this passage. When we look at verses 12 through 14, when Jesus emphasizes who to invite, here's the problem: It is the way of the world to be two-faced. It is the way of the world to be oblivious to many people's problems other than our own. It is the way of the world to be proud and arrogant. And it is the way of the world to view people as objects to use for our own benefit rather than souls to love. And by that I mean, Waylon, it's easy to view people for what we can get out of them. Rather than Jesus and how He viewed others, He viewed others as souls to love. He says, well, you make sure you invite the poor and the crippled and the lame and the poor because you'll be rewarded, you'll be paid back, but you'll be paid back at the resurrection of the just. This is the first occurrence of the word resurrection in the book of Luke. And it couldn't have come at a better time. You see, reciprocation is common. And yes, there's, there's, I guess, a place for it to some extent. But imagine inviting others to a dinner with the motivation of what they'll be able to do for me later. You scratch my back. I'll scratch yours. But see, every human being was created in the image of God and has a soul. That'll be somewhere eternally. How can I use someone for my own selfish purposes and desires who is a walking, talking, living, breathing image of what God is like. Something to think about. A couple of observations. Motivation. Years ago, one president said ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Ask not what others can do for you. Ask what you can do for others. Isn't that basically the golden rule? Matthew 7 and verse 12. Whatsoever you would that others should do to you, do you even so to them. This is the law and the prophets. it makes us look at our motivation but it also should cause us to think about the opportunity i believe that many people are eventually brought to jesus because they understood that christians really cared and loved their soul don't you And that it's one of the most powerful motivations in the world. We simply were showing the love of Jesus and not desiring to get anything personally out of it. But to show them something of the greatness of our Lord and Savior. And we can never reflect the greatness of our Lord and Savior in our lives enough. But we're privileged to try we have the opportunity to live and serve and love in such a way that people will see that. A lot is said about what's wrong with our country and what's wrong with the world, but I'll tell you what, if we'll look at Jesus' words in Luke 14, we'll find a way as the people of God to right some of those wrongs in our own hearts. And it'll make a difference in view of eternity. If you're not a Christian, you can come to Him this very day through faith, repentance, and baptism. Think about it. When Jesus comes, there's compassion to the sick. When Jesus is present, the lowly are exalted by His grace. And when Jesus is present, when Jesus is present... The have-nots are welcomed by His invitation. Come home to the Lord. For those of us who are Christians, the gospel really is glorious news. Let us stand and sing.